Hello and welcome to all my fellow sunshine seekers. I'm your host, Meredith Meeker, and this is another episode of How Do I Do This, an environmental career podcast. I want to start this episode off by saying I am so grateful to all the park and conservation area staff that have been working hard to keep our green spaces healthy and clean for us to enjoy during the past year, even though they have been under an increasing amount of pressure. So if you are also feeling grateful for the staff and the spaces, remember to pick up after yourself and your pets and please, please stay on the trail. Now you got to meet our guest, Gary Pritchard last week. And since you are back again, you already know how awesome he is. So I won't make you wait any longer for part two with Gary. Let's get into it. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. I've loved talking to you about your career, but I want to dive a little bit more into what we should know as a either professionals in the ecology space or just people who want to move towards reconciliation. I know you said reconciliation is 150 years away, but at least we're moving in the right direction. And so I'd love to just have that conversation with you, starting with, you know, what do you wish every young person entering the environmental field knew when it came to working with Indigenous communities? Well, that's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> small I get small asked, question. <laughs> small uh, question I get asked all the time. So I often think that everybody, all Canadians should start looking at cross-cultural awareness training. And uh, that's very important. I think that uh, it gives perspectives. I also think too that if you have a geogra- geographical unit where you work in, you need to have cross-cultural awareness training of that sp- specific area. Like as consultants, we, we tend to branch out across Canada and and it's funny, as an Indigenous person, people expect me to have every answer on Indigenous people, and I don't. And so when I go to a new area, I purchase as much information I can about that community to learn about that. So like if people lived in like the Corth of Lakes, we expect them to know a lot about us as the Williams Treaty First Nations people. So you start that process of cross-cultural learning yourself, and then you can maybe branch out to taking some courses as well with reputable Indigenous people who help lead those courses, or non-Indigenous people who have that allyship. And then from there, I often say that people should find mentors, people that you're comfortable working with. You know, people often call me up because uh, they know they can ask me any question. I won't be offended. I might make fun of them, but I won't. I always try to make them feel comfortable and you know that they can ask me anything. I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, that's the worst thing to say. I might do that as a joke, but then I explain, you know, where we're at with that, right, and, and what we need to do. If people want to find out more, I guess, about what treaties are in their area or even just know what communities are in their area is there a specific place they can look that up or is it just google because sometimes i'm a little skeptical of what comes <laughs> up just on the first page of google but yeah so one of the things that people often get referred to especially in consulting and in environmental fields are that you should look at atris which is the aboriginal treaty rights and information system and i don't like that website for southern ontario because they group them because it's a, like open source GIS kind of interactive thing. I don't like it because it groups people. So it doesn't actually tell you the actual treaty. So within like our area, like I'm, I'm in treaty 18 right now, but if you go all the way over, like there's treaties, multiple treaties, but they block them into parcels. So we need to actually break down to what actually treaty. And that's where people get the land acknowledgement wrong, or they get this wrong and they get this wrong. So typically too, what I do is I say, Hey, look up the closest first nation to where you are 
and then see if they have any information on their website about like community protocols and go from there because don't rely on like the government website because i don't find a lot of government information very accurate i looked at the first nation governments to have the accurate information and then i go and, and then if you want to know more to like people usually email me and, and i do always welcome that we can you know feel free to reach out to me as well because i'm always there to help people and just have those like those like, those questions you have ready and be patient too and you know, a lot of us who do do this work we're very busy and but we will we'll get back to you and and not to worry that's great i think this is showing you know my background i don't even think i would think to look at the First Nation government's website. Like, I wouldn't know that that would be a place I could go. So I think that's really great advice. And speaking of advice, other than reaching out to you, you know, is there, I maybe already answered this because I was going to say, what advice do you have for people who want to learn more and to have more conversations, but it's to find mentors and, and to reach out to people you know who can answer your questions? Yeah, and then that's as simple as that, right? Create those relationships. That's the big thing too. And uh, the, the big business that seems to be happening now is with different groups. It's like, what does a relationship framework look like? And and that's just a personal level as well as a, like a, you you could even say a corporate level, because you know the big one for us as First Nations is that it's always a one way street. People want the relationship with us, but then what do we get out of it uh, as well? And it's not saying we need to have monies. We need to have something, but like, it could be like, you might have a skill set that we need help with. Like, so you might have like GIS as a skill set, for example, we might need help with land use planning or species at risk mapping. Well, you can volunteer to help us, right? Or we can work together to find monies to create that, that, that partnership as well. And then we create that relationship framework that way, because it is still very much a, uh, one-way street when it comes to relationship building with First Nations, and that's something we need to move away from. Right, because that's, is that not just another kind of colonial artifact if we just keep having a taking or exploitive relationship? Yeah, it's still a mechanism, but I don't think it's a, a mechanism of colonialism that people know, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people think that I'm out there to, I'm, I'm willing to help people, that's the difference between me, but the people think that all indigenous people are out there to be like the interpretive guide like you would have at a um like a park or, or something like that and, and that's not necessarily the case some people may not have the knowledge that you need and and i actually when i talk about when i do cross-cultural awareness training don't be upset if those people don't have that that knowledge right keep asking for the right person that's okay too right because i mean if you were to go to a park and just ask anyone in a park about a bird or something there that person might, that might not be their job. That might not be their expertise. So why would you, I guess, expect that of just any Indigenous or First Nation person that they are the person to ask, if that makes sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it's fine because that's still what happens, right? Like it, Right. Yeah, I actually, and I'm not going to say, this is probably where just more education and more learning comes into play. I was listening to another podcast that I really like and they're called ologies so they talk to a different ologist and this one happened to be a Toronto-based indigenous fashionology mm. episode and he was talking about how we're taught that First Nations in Canada like in our school system is a thing of the past like we don't actually address in school you know where do First Nations live now it's always in the historical colonial discovery of Canada, not what does Canada look like now? And I think that's 
probably very damaging and where a lot of these disconnects come from. Oh, for sure. And I, and I see that too, like when I do reports and I, and I uh, peer review it's for First Nation communities and stuff like that, we get that whole, and I, and I can kind of be, I think one of my role models is like House, like the TV character House, or if I'm in a, like a, a snippy mood, I will actually like really burn people. And so like, I just did a peer review and actually the biologist who wrote it, I was really shocked because they actually wrote, there's no indigenous use of this watershed at all in Southern Ontario. And I actually inserted a picture of that person and myself fishing together on that river in my report back to the, the my my community and to the and to the proponent and, and to the regulators. And they're like, oh. And I said that and that is a, that exact thing. You don't know where we live, Monterey. Like I come from a community where the bulk of our, our community actually lives off reserve and, and we're actually we have membership all across Canada. And there's only a small fraction of us that actually live on reserve. So people just don't know that, right? And I've heard that in, in Barrie, there's not any, there's very small population of Indigenous people. Like I know six of my subdivision, which is apparently like a bulk of the Barrie population, but that's not true. And so we need to start breaking down of like those barriers to like, where do we live, right? We, people view that we only live on reserve and that's not, the, not necessarily the case. Right. And I mean, hopefully we're, we're, you know, going to bridge that and more work needs to be done, but Something that I do see often, and I want to get your opinion on it, is, you know, the use of the land acknowledgement, either at the beginning of an event or, you know, a beginning of a podcast to acknowledge where, where people are. What do you think of that and, and how it's being used? Yeah, uh, that's always interesting. I always find that uh, that's a question I get asked a lot and and. My circle of friends and I, we ask that question to each other quite a bit. So one of the steps I always often say, please don't ask an Indigenous person that you know who is helping you to do the land acknowledgement. Typically, we are in our traditional territories or territories, so we don't believe we should do that because the land acknowledgement we do. And, and I, it's interesting because we actually saw that this week with homeschool and I saw they do a land acknowledgement at my daughter's school. And I asked the question to the teacher. I said, does my daughter have to do this because she's in her territory? It's a different land acknowledgement than say someone who's not from their territory and they're like really and i said yeah this is our territory so mine's usually like welcome to my traditional territories we invite you to the territory as guests and then i usually say something funny like and as good guests don't forget to leave right and just something <laughs> like that and it's always funny because i said that's part of our cultural protocols when i do travel to different first nations i do acknowledge that i'm in their their community and their territory i i'm not a lately i'm not a big i don't I struggle with the land acknowledgement because people do a land acknowledgement because they think that's now part of the status quo of a meeting or what they're supposed to do. And they don't not like really understand it. And because it's like, we acknowledge that we're on your land and your territory. And by the way, don't mind these bulldozers in the background. They're about to mow down this forest that we're about to do. So I often, there needs to be an action or a meaning for people to do to implement. Right. So like you, and I often ask like, why do you want to do a land acknowledgement? Right? And people are like, we don't know. We just like, we feel like that's what we need to do. And I said, and that's often you need to do more learning on why you need to do that. And don't feel that if you don't do it at the start of a meeting, that that's going to hinder your ability to work with Indigenous people because you're still going through that Indigenous learning. And practice the names if you're going to do that, right? We're Anishinaabe people, the Haudenosaunee people. Make sure you know the words of Southern Ontario because that's important too. Yes. I mean, it'd be like mispronouncing somebody's first name. And mm -hmm. you're introducing them, right? Like it's, 
it's kind of rude. We've seen it go viral when people do it at awards show. <laughs> so, I mean, don't get the entire, I guess, name of a people wrong. That seems pretty basic, though, if you're doing one, but maybe not. <laughs> so we were doing them at the beginning of our podcast, and it was because we were trying to, as an ecology group, I guess, draw attention to the fact that we are on the traditional territories. But is that appropriate? Or should we be maybe even saying more of a statement of gratitude to the land? Like, I, I'm genuinely asking. Right, yeah. So I, I like that, that you know, you're you're there. You guys are trying to care for the land. So I, I, I do believe you view that you are an ally. I actually drop the word traditional usually because mm-hmm. traditional is another colonial past tense word. Right. Because we're still here. And people often say, like, you know, Gary doesn't live in Curve Lake all the time, but he defends the other side of the territory, right? He lives on the other side of the territory, so he can watch the whole thing because I end up driving it all the time. But, yeah, and and don't feel that you need to because not all t- moments call for a land acknowledgement. I, I personally feel like it's like if we're doing a big community meeting and we often acknowledge, you know, where we are. and But, yeah, like, you know, and res- like... In our land acknowledgement, if you Google Curve Lake First Nations land acknowledgement, we talk about how we defend the the land and the water. And, and if we're all doing that, then we're actually fine. And if you actually are all doing that, you actually, within my, my treaty, you actually live to the obligations of that treaty. Right? So that's really important to know that. So maybe that's something I should be doing personally is, is looking at what are the actual, like, I've never read a treaty. Right. So yeah. I don't Most actually... have it. So I don't actually know what's what's in them. I know the word, but none of the substance. So I'm going to put that on my personal education learning journey. So I guess on that note, what are some of the biggest differences or gaps that, that you see between the traditional or not traditional, the current Western or colonial approach to, to conservation and ecology versus ones that integrate, you know, your knowledge system or traditional ecological knowledge yeah so i actually like to try to blend as much as possible both knowledge systems so like for example we do like the um, o's course or the ontario wetland evaluation one i will actually go through our plant list and stuff like that and say okay here's some indigenous uh, medicine plants or stuff to give it added value right and often too i always find that like on certain western science protocols like is there indigenous use presence uh yes no i don't know or something like kind of a, a box like that right and people are like i don't know and so there's certain cultural features some like rivers and lakes and wetlands that you should just be checking yes because that's actually a big priority for our, our all nations and it's funny because we actually give that box right and i always find fun with the different boxes Western science, I find, is lacking in data collection. Ironically, if you talk about that, it's, and, and I'll explain it like this. So, like, typically as ecologists, you'll be sent out in the field and you'll do one round of uh, surveys and hope to goodness you find that uh, species at risk that flies over your head, especially ones that fly or really swim fast. You never get to see them, right? You, if it's a tree or a plant, you, you, there's a great likelihood you'll encounter it. But the ones that are here may not be temporarily there. You never get to see. So we, like, as First Nations, like environmental scientists, to you a four-season approach. And we often, when that uh, we're approached, we often say that. Please do a four-season approach because I don't think you capture the whole life of the site with just one visit and, and one moment of time. But with that, so if you look at the other side of it, so that's a trial and error experiment. 
indigenous knowledge can be looked at as a trial and, exper- trial and error experiment as well, because if we didn't do it well, we wouldn't have survived. And so that's how it, that, that's actually passed down. Those knowledge systems are passed down. It is through that trial and error. Okay, don't do that, right? Ironically, I make the joke, Western science versus traditional knowledge. You know, the use of a chainsaw, our traditional knowledge says, do not run a chainsaw across your legs because it'll hurt, right? Someone's done that historically and they've done it once and then everybody in the community knows that that's not a good idea. Western science, Okay, someone does it, we come up with a hypothesis, we do it 30 times to 30 people, and then we come up with a conclusion that that's not a good idea. And then that's the way to look at it, right? We have 10,000 years of good baseline data of different migration patterns and, and things like that. So look at those knowledge systems as uh, a place for integration, right? I often find it funny, right? Like I'm now being tasked with a lot of my project is to validate my family as well as my community as well as other indigenous communities their traditional knowledge of the area right they tell me their traditional knowledge i record it i somehow get that checkbox under the colonial model of an ea but then they're like okay well we want to actually go destroy that area or develop that area so now i have to go validate those features are still there and that's that's actually not helping towards reconciliation right that (laughs) second guessing or you having to prove your extensive knowledge for somebody's you know they might have never even stepped on that property or that Mm -hmm. land that would be yeah pretty insulting i would think so maybe this is a great segue if you could design the consultation or collaboration process i guess for eas or environmental impact studies for development what would it what would it look like yeah, so I often use the word, so I would actually refer to the word consultation as engagement, because unless okay. we're directed by the Crown, we're trying to engage and create a, a relationship framework with the First Nation. And just so they know that, the, the consultation word comes into the legal framework of the Crown, so most of us will not be Crown employees, we'll probably all be consultants forever. And so you do only do engagement. So that's a, a big thing that people need to know and, and start writing it like that so that they, they don't think that they do consultation. But in the whole collaboration process, there's many layers of Indigenous people you need to collaborate with, and people don't know that. I actually start by uh, always thinking you should issue a letter to the rights holders, which are those of the people who are treated to the area. So that's actually to the individual ind- Indigenous community. But then there's also different groups within the, the project footprint. So there's also the interest holders, which are people who historically might have had ties to those areas, but they're not treated. I, I like to refer to them as an interest holder. And then there's also the urban Indigenous population. And that's actually uh, an interesting population. Those are either people who live off reserve, they're your friendship centers or like different uh, groups like that. But they're also maybe indigenous people who relocated to that area to, for work or play, right? So like I would say when I lived up north, when I lived, well, we'll use the example, I lived in Sudbury, I was part of the urban indigenous population who lived there. I didn't believe I had rights to that area. I actually just lived there because of my job, but I do have knowledge that I could pass on as well. So there's different things that, and I actually do that, that three-tiered collaboration. So I take the, the information from the urban indigenous population as well as the interest holders, compile that, and I also formulate that into the plan to work with the rights holders, and then I collectively have the rights holders consent and the, to the overall design, and that's what actually happens for me. And that, that actually is a true collaborational process of what it should look like. Considering there were uh, quite a few new terms for me in that (laughs) short answer, (laughs) it sounds like maybe we've got a long way to go. But I mean, it seems like a very doable process. It didn't seem like very far-fetched or like asking a lot even. So hopefully that it is achievable in the future. 
Yeah, and, and the biggest problem, right, it, it, their challenge would be that we don't have, like, Western or colonial governments are so checkbox or protocol-oriented, there's just not a protocol on how to relate to people. And that's <laughs> that's the hardest part of this. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And finally, like, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, but if somebody wanted to get involved with your organization or learn more about what you're doing, where should they go? What should they be checking out? Yeah. So, you know, you can always uh, search for me on LinkedIn. You can reach me on there. You can reach out to the Cambium Indigenous Professional Services website as well. And it, I think the acronym is SIPS now, but just type in Cambium Indigenous Professional Services. You can find us and you can actually book individual meetings with one of our teams. So if you want to talk to me, you can actually book a Zoom meeting with me through the website or one of our other people that we have on staff. We also have access to our younger people too. You can actually talk to them about what their career looks like. Yeah. And, and that's the way we do it. Also, we do a lot of community-based web so I'm doing some webinars with the Canadian Environmental Law Association about Indigenous placemaking, decolonizing the environmental field, as well as ecology, and barriers to conservation. And what do they look like? So I, we do monthly webinars like that as well. People can come and interact with us as well. And we speak at a lot of different events and we do a lot with Ontario Nature and, and we're always available to be reached through them as well. Those sound like great webinars. Also, is there a place where people can see your photography? I'm working on that. Yeah, it's because I'm just getting new into the whole digital thing. So like I got a new MacBook, I'm going to start doing all that. But actually, that's the neat part of that I've been really thinking about. And if um, people have that knowledge that can share with me, I'd love to hear from them. Because I've been photographing across our Williams Treaty area, all within the different treaties, with the sub-treaties of that area. And I'm actually trying to like, hey, and these are the species we've seen in uh, Treaty 27 and 27 and a quarter. Here's the stuff we've seen in the Gunshot Treaty. Like, look at that unique biodiversity that we still have within these urban centers, right? We had, like, it was really interesting this year. We had an influx. We've never had these birds before in our reserve. We had scarlet tangers show up and kind of, like, we've never seen them. None of us have seen them before. Yeah. I, I almost rolled my car trying to actually get a photo of one. And But it's just that, that connection, that connectivity to nature, right? We have thinking about setting up a bird feeder camera in my house just so people can see that, right? We have all these neat things we've had. I actually set up a, a still camera too for at the bird feeder. We've had 38 species since COVID started at the bird feeders in our house, right? That's crazy. Um, That's very impressive. And there's been recent studies that show bird diversity is linked to happiness. So the more birds you see, the happier you are. <laughs> Well, it's, it's like that for my kids, right? It's like a, a game. How many can we see, right? Like right before Christmas, it was just me and my daughter and we, we saw a, a rare or an endangered species every day leading up to Christmas for five days. We're like, oh, wow, that's pretty neat, right? And she's like, oh, we only got one, right? Okay, like, oh, I'm like, oh, sorry. I'm like, trying to explain that these are endangered. They're hard to come by, right? But it's important to have that, to, to get the, the youth out there and, and see that. But it was a lot of fun just to go out and photograph them and, and to see them, right? Very much so. Well, I guess if people have that expertise with photography and how to set that up, get in touch with you on LinkedIn or, or through your website. And I'm going to be looking out for it because I'm excited to see those those shots that you do post. All right. Gary deserves a huge thank you for sharing his culture and his knowledge. I really hope you learned something new today, but more importantly, that it's highlighted how much there is to learn. And I hope you go out and are able to build new relationships and find new sources of knowledge. 
And if you liked this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single one. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find out about cool job opportunities and events like our annual general meeting coming up in March. All right. Thank you for sticking it out to the end. Come back next week when we sit down with one of my past employers and one of the people working to keep our wildlife and us healthy and safe. Your fun fact of the day was inspired by a recent birding adventure. Depending on who you ask, blue jays are cheeky and delightful birds or major bird feeder bullies. They have a variety of calls and are able to mimic the call of the red-tailed hawk. It's good enough to fool my ears and apparently they're feathered friends. They've developed this call to scare other birds away. So next time you hear a red-tailed hawk, double check to make sure it just wasn't a crafty blue jay. All right, that's all from me. Talk to you again next week. Happy trails.